For most of us, our favorite type of fishing is the seafood counter yeah. <laughs> at King Supers or Safeway, right? There's a picture of a lady kissing a fish. You got that one? That is the Pike Street Market, okay, fish market um, in Seattle. And I've been there, and it, believe me, if you've never done that experience, you are ducking fish being thrown over your head, and uh, it, it is quite an experience. But I was able to walk out without buying a fish. Uh, I like fishing for fish. I like casting for fish. I like catching fish. I don't eat much fish. Uh, <clears throat> and as I have talked to other people and talk, talking about, you know, what is your favorite type of fishing, in addition to the seafood <laughs> counter at the supermarket, uh, this is what I've heard from many of you that some of you have a passion for fishing and you do deep sea fishing. Others of you don't go quite out that far. You do kayak fishing. Others of you go down a river on a float boat. I've seen some of you here in some of our ponds and it looks like a glorified inner tube and you do your fishing that way. Uh, I have heard of lake fishing. I've heard of bait fishing. I've heard of lure fishing. But I'm a purist. I'm a fly fisherman. Right, men? That's the only way to really fish. And the funny thing about fishing or fly fishing is that I enjoy walking up a stream and doing a battle of wits with, I'm told, an animal that has a brain the size of a pea. Now, I've been told sometimes that's about the size of my brain, but usually I think of my brain as much larger. And so why is it in the battle of wits with an animal with a brain the size of a pea, I often catch nothing. In fact, I often walk away, Lord, the fish are so stupid, they don't even seem to be hungry today. More than that, they are smiling because, you know, Jim came by again, we didn't eat again, we're living today, we're living for another day with our pea brains, but boy, are we smarter than him. Um, that's what it's like. Fishing can be a very frustrating thing. Now, I take to heart this one truth, that as you look at all four Gospels, you find that Jesus spends a, spends a large amount of his time in those three years on the Sea of Galilee, or I'm going to put it this way, around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It is no more than six miles wide and usually much narrower, and, no, and it is exactly about 12 miles long. However, as you notice that uh, Jesus is often on a boat uh, in the sea, uh, going from one side to another, it never records him fishing. I, I dare you to challenge it, okay? You can challenge me, but if you look there, he's with fishermen, but he's never caught in the act of fishing himself. I guess he went to the seafood counter. Uh, <clears throat> more than that, uh, the first of his four disciples... We're all fishermen. We know that Jesus cooks fish. We know that he eats fish. He tells stories about fishing. And he tells other disciples where they should fish. But he's never recorded as fishing himself. Yet he uses all the language that a fisherman would use. He uses all the symbols. And the reason he does that is it's, it's sort of the where and the how where Jesus finds himself. Uh, he is, he finds himself with fishermen, so he learns to talk like them. And he seems to do it well. 
Friends, we are in this stage of looking at the gospel of Mark where he has gone from uh, being just arriving on the scene to now launching his ministry. And the gospel of Mark opens with these words. It doesn't talk about his birth. It doesn't talk about his lineage, you know, who his ancestors were. It begins with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the very beginning, we understand he is an historical figure. And as most of you have studied him, you understand he is a great teacher. For example, you know, how we did this and how everybody loved it. You know, whose picture's on this coin, he would ask. And people would say it was Caesar. For me, it's Dwight D. Eisenhower, okay? But whose picture is here? They would answer the question and he'd go and teach. And they would sit enthralled because he was teaching like no one else ever had. We know that he is a great moral leader. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If your neighbor strikes you, turn the other cheek. Don't strike back. We know that he's a miracle worker. Uh, This gospel says Jesus comes to them walking on the water. But the claim we're grappling with is the one that is to be proven for the next 11 chapters. And it comes from chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're grappling with the identity, with the nature of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and what it means to him to have that identity and nature, but also what it means for us to have the Son of God who has come to earth. So now we're looking at, we're going a little deeper, a little further this week. We've looked at um, this title that he has. We've looked at John preparing him uh, the way for Jesus to come. Uh, We've looked at Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. Now we understand that he launches into his own ministry. But as the one and only Son of God, we want to explore what it means to believe in him, yes, but also to follow him into the next level. And we have four adult men as our examples. It begins this way. I'm reading from chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when you look at those words, you have to understand that John had a certain ministry and John is now gone. He's arrested. He will soon be beheaded by Herod. And now, you know, that was the ministry he had. This opens up that that Jesus has no competition. There's no one else, no other prophet going through the area. And, And so this is the person that now people turn to. John had a certain ministry. It was preparing people for the Messiah to come. They would confess their sins. They would repent from their sins. In other words, act differently, have a change of heart about the way they were living. And then he would baptize them as a public symbol that these were people who wanted to change their lives. They were asking for the forgiveness of their sins. So his baptism was a baptism for forgiveness. Now, Jesus comes into the, the scene in the same basic area, just a few miles upriver from where John was baptizing. And he comes on the scene and it says he proclaims the good news. Back to verse 14. 
Uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, you look at that and, and you go, well, what are their specifics? That's a very broad category. Jesus' words that follow will tell us what that good news is. But I want you to know, because he's beginning his ministry, it seems like he stays a little bit on the surface, and our job will be to go deeper into it and to go below the surface. So he has this message. This is the good news. Verse 15, Jesus is saying, as he explains the good news of God, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Hey, we can all memorize that. Look, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. I didn't read it the second time. That is so easy, and that's what he kept saying to people. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Now, he probably went into more detail, but that's what we have recorded. And so as he's, as he's saying that, you, you got to narrow it down. It deals with closeness, and it deals with timing. The good news is that the God of the universe has entered time and space. He is not distant. He has not forgotten us. He does not disdain us, but love us, so he has come near. Now, in the movie Killing Jesus, based on the book by Bill O'Reilly, who is not a theologian and not an historian, but it's worth reading, in the book Killing Jesus and in the movie that was made about it, Uh, from the book, it shows that most people at first when Jesus comes on the scene are rejecting his words. And one of the reasons is he's teaching it alone. People hear him there near the Sea of Galilee and they hear him and then they argue with him, which was a typical form of conversation uh, because uh, Jesus would say, you've heard it said that this is what you you should do, but I'm telling you, God says, no, it is more this. So there would be a contradictory conversations going on. And as Jesus comes, what he is saying is, God is at work as you've never seen him at work in your lifetime or in recent history. God is at work and God is here. He's working here in your presence as he's never shown himself before. That is what Jesus can say. There are some things that Jesus cannot say, that he cannot go deeper because of the timing of his ministry. What he cannot say is that God has promised the Messiah and God has been silent in Israel for over 400 years. Not for a few moments, not for a season, but for, for, you know, I mean, for uh, scores of generations, God has not spoken. But then he says, this is God's moment and this is God's place. He's not ready to say that he is the Messiah. The second thing is that this is God's place, just as was promised through the prophets. And that means the words that you are hearing now from Jesus' lips. This is what God has decided to say at this time and in this place. And that Jesus is God's son unveiled and clearly visible. Now, he can't say that yet. Because if he claims to be God's son, let's just say his ministry would be greatly shortened. Because when he does say it, look what they do to him. He will prove that his words are true. His divine identity will become very clear in the chapters ahead. But friends, it may be this morning that you come here and you're somewhat confused. 
Who is this Jesus? You have a shallow knowledge of him. And I want you to know that the words that we are looking at are designed for you. If you are unclear, if you are fuzzy, all I can say is please keep coming, keep listening, keep reading with me. Read it for yourself and let me uh, talk about what those words mean. And understand that God's desire for you is that the gospel, the good news that he's speaking, will become less fuzzy, less murky. And you will be progressing in your understanding of who Jesus is. Now that is what you say the beginning, part one of his message. Part two of his message is found in that same verse where Jesus says, Now, uh, the gospel of God is near, okay? When he says, uh, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. That's his gospel. The second part of his gospel is repent and believe the good news. Just don't let me speak it. Take it in. Repent. Have a change of mind and a change of heart about what you're hearing. And believe. Don't just absorb it, but trust in it. So, uh, Jesus' message is what we should do about what God is doing in this moment. And he begins by telling him, repent. Whatever you thought you had God figured out and however you, you know, you designed him to be, uh, I'm changing that. I'm a prophet. I have some things to tell you that God is saying now for you. So drink it in. And then the second thing is change your mind about it, but then also believe in it. In other words, put your trust in the fact that God is at work in this time, in this place. We know that he's at work now. Friends, whether it's uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee and all the towns around the northwest part of it, or whether it was Jerusalem or whether it's Evergreen, this is the God who is always at work. And we know he's at work as we study deeper and deeper who this Jesus is. And also understand that He speaks to a religious community that was stuck. Jesus speaks today to a secular community. A secular community that says, you know, we have six senses here. and But one of those is not a spiritual sense. God is at work to bring you back into a relationship with him. And he does it through Jesus Christ. True in Galilee... True today. True everywhere. We look for God's work and God's word. You see, if you are basing everything on the senses that you have, your your, your taste, your touch, your smell, your vision, if you are trusting in those, understand that that's not all you were designed for. Listen to this from Ecclesiastes, from, from Solomon, as he says, God has set eternity in the human heart. What we cannot, yet we cannot fathom what he has done. We by nature work within the realm of these senses that we have, but we do not understand as God's special creation and as the highest that he has ever created, that in his special creation, he has put in us also eternity. Your dog does not think about eternity. I love your dog. You've got a good dog. Nothing wrong with your dog. Your goldfish does not think about life after death. 
Neither does your cat. I'm sorry, you horse people. Your, your horses are believing in eternity. I know that. <laughs> no. It is just given to us. The human heart has this idea of eternity, and yet we don't understand what to do about it. But in our souls, we know God has a spiritual dimension that he gives to us as humans. And it goes far beyond our material senses. So God sends Jesus with this good news that he, Jesus, has come to fulfill that longing and meet those needs no one else can do. And he says, repent and believe and your soul will be satisfied by God. Well, again, many do not believe him, just like many do not believe uh, us today. And there are many others who think, I'm, I don't need to repent, I'm a pretty good person. You understand, humanity hasn't changed much in the last 2,000 years. What we found 2,000 years ago, we find in human hearts today. But the chances are, that you are not here today because it's the first time in 25 weeks in which there's no professional football. (laughs) The chances are you've come because you've had some understanding that you are created with something inside of you that only God can touch because God put it there. And you want more. You want to be taken further. You want that satisfaction for your soul. But we understand that many of the human hearts don't want to go there. As an example, some are very uninterested and distracted. So when it comes to recognizing the true identity of Jesus Christ, they go, I'm just not ready for that right now. They do not allow Jesus to satisfy the needs of their hearts. There are others who are distracted. Their minds are on other things. Friends, there's a lot of good things in this world. Career advancement, financial security, uh, the politics of the day. I've never had, I mean, with all due respect, I'm having fun in this political season. Uh, I really am because I go, man, you know, aren't we Americans just fantastic people? You know, and, and I look at the division on both sides and I, and I keep praying, Jesus, you're right in the middle of this. And I think you're at work through people's dissatisfactions. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do. But people are distracted. They have other things on their mind. Personal relationships. It just goes on and on. There are others, when they hear about the good news that Jesus brings, you might say they're seeking. But they're seeking by gathering information. Trying to say, well, this is sort of what I've settled on for my life. You, you know, are you claiming there could actually be more for my life than what I've settled on? And the answer is, if Jesus is not in the middle, yes, absolutely. So gain more information. You may not be ready to commit, but get all the necessary information that you need to come to the conclusion that this Jesus is for real, not just in history. There are others who are believing. They believe like Jesus Christ declares, repent and believe the good news. They have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. On this side of the cross, we look back at his cross and his resurrection and realize it wasn't just humans doing work, but it was God doing his work. He redeems through his cross. And he gives us hope in our hearts through his resurrection so that he was the first and we know that we can follow. That is what God has in mind. So they're able to say that Jesus 
is God's son, these people who are believing are able to say, Jesus is my savior. Jesus is the one who has gained for me acceptance from my God. Now that is a great step to take. And if you've never done it, of placing your trust in Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you even this morning. Do it today. But now there are those who recognize what he offers. And they say, what's next? And what's next is following Jesus, not just believing him, but following him. The time between those steps for me was about two years. Uh, Please understand that I start real slow and then I slow down more in my life, okay? I'm not a go-getter. I'm a cogitator. I'm a thinker. I try to absorb things from every possible source and and then uh, draw some conclusions. So the time for me as a high schooler took about two years. I knew that I had, you know, uh, received the, the offer that Jesus had made me, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I knew that I had received that, and I just sort of rested on that. It made no difference in my life. I let Jesus save me. I wasn't yet letting him lead me. And following Jesus has been the greatest adventure of my life. But I want you to know it's humbling. It's costly. You know, here at Bergen Park Church, we talk about what following Jesus looks like. And we have a transformation model. Uh, It's it's a diagram that we use here that shows that spiritual growth or transformation in our lives is very similar to what we talk about following Jesus is like. What Jesus does with his disciples is what he does with us today. We're still humans and we respond in the same way. And you will find these things consistent in the Bible as well as consistent throughout the history of Christianity. We are transformed as we follow. And he will lead this, lead us in three basic directions. First of all, he wants us to go deeper with him. That means we just don't talk about God, but we get to know him. Some of that will involve study. Some of that will involve experiences that we have. In other words, we, we, we come to believe that what I'm going through, God is present, and, and, and he's right here with me, and, and, and I'm learning through it. Do you have that desire to know God better? That's what it means to go deeper. And when you know God better, you will be looking at his, at his son, Jesus, and you say, that's God in the flesh. So we go deeper with God. And we get to know what he's like. The second thing is we grow closer. That means to one another. I have been blessed by being around followers of Jesus Christ and closely united to them uh, from the very first time I hit CU. And I think those believers are what saved me and helped me get through CU. Uh, There's a lot to do at CU that has nothing to do with following Jesus. I'd name them, but you, you would know. And CU is no different than any other university. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> if you're from CU, you know that it is. But anyway. Uh, and, and from that time, I was just surrounded by Christians. And I can honestly say that I was, as I was growing closer to them, they were like my peer group, like, like, like a, a, a new culture in my life. And it was made up of those who were also following Jesus. And I felt like I was just going along with them. 
In the third circle you see, there's the one reaching farther. That means that we find ourselves trying to help others follow Jesus too. And that is now as we come to, to what Jesus is talking about in his first four disciples. He puts it this way. I begin at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Now understand he's been at the sea uh, doing what he says, proclaiming the good news of God, which we just went through. So as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Before Jesus ever does a recorded miracle, Jesus calls people to follow him. Before the great power of God is demonstrated, the invitation is given. Okay, now you've believed in me, now follow me. And then later you will see him doing these great works. In fact, as early as next week. But before he does, you know, before he does these great demonstrations of God working through him, he makes this call. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What he's saying is that Jesus wants people to reach people, to put it another way. Jesus wants his people to catch other people, to be fishers of men. The analogy is clear, even though it never shows Jesus fishing. Fishing Fishermen understand that they fish for fish. Those who are his disciples understand that God wants more people in his nets. More people than they'd ever seen uh, before and more more people than they ever had fish in their nets, these first four disciples. Do you like that vision? I love that vision. I desire that vision for my own life. To be a person of deeper influence on people that I know. Deeper influence for God. And I understand that just about every relationship I'm in, I want to relate them as another, to them as just another human being would relate to them. But you know, I also want to influence them to believe in Jesus and to follow him. I can't do that by standing on a soapbox and preaching. I've had to find other ways. I tried standing on a soapbox and preaching. Downtown Australia, downtown Sydney. Man, did people walk by. But no one stayed. Not even to hear my accent. They just kept walking by. But I was challenged. Can you do that by some, by some street evangelist? Said, of course I can do that. I can't do that. I can't do it effectively. But I know how to get into people's lives. Slowly. And I know how to look for opportunities when they'll be open like they've never been open before. That's what he is calling his disciples to do. Now look what happens. It says that once they leave their nets too. So first of all, uh, Andrew and, and Simon, who we later call Peter, they leave their nets. 
uh, later, James and John. What's going on here is not only do they leave their nets, but it says at once or immediately, as one translation puts it, and immediately is done 47 times. As I mentioned, before I leave something and before I act, I evaluate, I do a cost-time analysis on a spreadsheet. I like to seek counsel from many people, and I like to take my time. They did not take their time. They had probably been hearing Jesus, hearing him preach the good news that we went through in the first couple verses. Jesus calls them, and then they go. Do you understand that Jesus is inviting everyone who believes in him to also follow him? And that's the question we have to ask. Have you gone from that wonderful stage of being a believer in him to be a follower of him, meaning you are not just my savior, but you are my leader? You are the one I am trusting and what you say I will do. He goes again to James and John. And it says, there he just says, follow me. The same invitation, not not spelled out as well. I guess uh, there's probably many reasons about that. And as we have these four, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, the one we know the least about is uh, Andrew, Simon's brother. Simon Peter sort of takes precedence. We don't know anything about his personal life. Then Simon Peter... And we know this about Simon Peter, that he had to pay quite a few costs to follow Jesus. We know that he's married and has responsibilities. We know that as a fisherman, he's trying to make a living for his family. And yet he follows. James and John, we know they have a father. His name is Mr. Zebedee, okay? And we know that you know they're called on their boat. We know that uh, Mr. Zebedee just doesn't have two sons, but he has hired hands. They had, you know, that they both have a father. That father has hired hands. And there's at least one boat, probably many. Scholars tell us that Mr. Zebedee probably had a residence uh, of his own. You might say a condo in Jerusalem. And maybe below that condo was their fish shop. It makes a lot of sense. They were, they had a family business. They were people of means. And as he calls them, he says, you're leaving the means behind to follow me. You're leaving your father behind. You're leaving that sign, Zebedee and Sons Fresh Fists Company, behind you for now. And we know that all four were persecuted. We know that three of them were martyred. And we know that when they decided to follow, they probably hadn't count all the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. For us today, I know that when I became a Christian, uh, my parents didn't want me to have much to do with it. And so it took some convincing of them that it was better for them to have their son go to church than better for them to have their church, I mean, better, better for them to have their son go to church than to have their son stay home Sunday morning. Um, I think before my dad died, he said, that wasn't too hard. I'd much rather you be in church than home. Okay, it's the other places you go to, Jim. Not on Sunday morning, but it's the other places you go to where I'm concerned. That was some of the costs that people began. There's family cost. There's friends cost. Some of you may be unfriended because of what you put on your, uh, you know, on, on your website. Uh, you'll probably have less money to spend. There'll probably be less free time. Um, you'll feel less in touch with your culture. 
You'll be considered weird by many who do not follow Jesus Christ. But as you follow him, you will come to this understanding that God has put eternity in the hearts of men and you have tapped in to that in a way that the rest of humanity is missing. The creator has designed you for a relationship with him. And as you follow him, you will know your God. You will love your God. You'll be saying yes more and more to God. This, uh, this last week, I heard that one of the people who had the deepest Christian influence on my life had passed away. He was into his mid-80s. And uh, we knew it was coming. Um, but we also knew two things that he said that you should remember about following Christ. Number one, he said, can you believe that this young man from Hammond, Indiana, has been allowed to have the influence in people's lives that God allowed me to have. Basically, he was saying, what a ride this life was. Second thing he said, and I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. Each of us has a sphere of influence that already exists. And if you're following Jesus, you take him into it. And when you follow him, like my friend Chuck, you will be saying, what a ride. No regrets. Eternal gratitude. Yes, there are costs. They won't seem that important. So let me ask you two important questions as we sort of close this morning. And, and, and again, Understand that this is something that you may, like me, have to think about. You know, you don't know, but let's just look at this first question. Don't answer it yet, then I'll ask you to answer it. Who do you follow? Who do you follow in life? Well, I follow the Green Bay Packers. Bad choice. I follow my financial advisor. He speaks, I listen. Bad choice. And we could go on and on and on. Who do you follow? And the answer should be Jesus. And finally, what do you fish for? And the answer is man. Now, let me gender neutral that. People. But Jesus said men. I'll make you a fishers of men. Now, are you ready to answer these questions before we pray? Church, who do you follow? I don't think he's impressed. (laughs) Could we try that again? Church, who do you follow? That's right. And what do you fish for? Men, women. Okay, you go, go ahead. Let's pray. Almighty God, when we say we're going to be fishing for people, for men, women, and I'm drawing the line there. When we say we're going to fish for people. We stop right now because you have laid people's souls on our hearts. And before we go any further, we bring to you these people whom we contact consistently, whom we love deeply, and whom we desire will follow Jesus with us.
We just state their names again to you. Yes, Lord, you heard those names. The kingdom of God. is here and it is now. Take those names again and show your work in their lives and use us. And now, Father, may our minds expand and our hearts explode with what we see and experience of your Son as we march through this gospel. May we never be the same like Simon and Andrew and James and John. We're never the same. And use this gospel as Jesus has called his first four followers to make us into better followers of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' great, powerful name. And we know you want to answer this prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.